Are you ready for an interview with creative people too? Carolina. It's Carolina Stories. All right, giddy up. Today's episode is going to be another experiment with a new format. So this will be an idea deep dive where I'll run through my investing thesis for Stitch Fix, the innovative online apparel retailer. So one quick note before we get started. The voiceover accompanies a slide presentation, and I will include a link to the video presentation in the show notes in case you want to follow along. So with that, let's dig in. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this virtual webinar. My name is Steve Vafier, and today I'm going to present my long thesis on Stitch Fix. There are really two purposes for the presentation. First and foremost, it's a way for me to crystallize my own thinking. It's a forcing function to revisit and re-underwrite the investment. And second, I believe the internet is like a magnet. You put ideas out into the world and you attract other folks who have looked at similar ideas, thought about similar ideas. And so really this is an invitation for feedback and constructive criticism from folks on both the long and short side of the trade. I'd also love feedback from people who may have a customer experience with Stitch Fix. So before I dive in, I'll give a quick overview of my background. I started my career in investment banking at Morgan Stanley from 2007 through 2009. So I was in the industrials group and I was the analyst on the General Motors restructuring. It was a crash course in not only finance and accounting, but also capital structure and liquidity and operating leverage. So I had a fantastic experience there. And then in mid-2009, I moved to Silicon Valley to start my investing career. I joined a $2 billion growth equity fund called Elevation Partners. Um, and I learned a ton. I mean, I had a front row seat to all of the technology disruption that's happened over the past decade. I got exposed to some of the best business models in the world. And I really gained an appreciation for the role that growth can play in a portfolio. Uh, so I was there from 2009 through 2015, and some of the notable winners were Facebook, Yelp, Sonos, and Airbnb, all pre-IPO. And then in 2015, um, I am still, from 2015 till today, I'm still actively involved in the successor fund to Elevation called Next Equity Partners. So continuing to make uh, private invest investments into um, technology companies. And I also managed my own capital in a long-only concentrated strategy in the public markets. So there's a heavy emphasis on smaller and less liquid names to uh, companies that the big institutions and hedge funds can't spend as much time on. Um, it's an industry agnostic strategy, and I like to say I'm searching for privately traded alternatives. So a much longer time horizon than your average public market investor. And so Stitch Fix is a, a perfect example of the types of companies I look for. Sub $2 billion market cap. The free float is well under a billion. Um, and the profile is exactly the type of growth investment I would look for on the private side. Great management team, low penetration rate, and uh, sustainable competitive advantages. So I'm pretty excited about it. Um, page two, before we, uh, we really dive in is the disclaimer. I encourage you to read this. This is intended for informational purposes only. Nothing said today should be considered investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security. 
Um, these are also my views and my views alone. I do own shares in Stitch Fix, but I generally think it's a big mistake to follow people into an investment without doing your own work. I mean, I've made mistakes in the past. I will make plenty more in the future. And this is also a static presentation as of May 12th, 2020. Um, and so I pride myself as an investor when facts or circumstances change, being able to change my mind. Um, so keep that in mind and please do your own work. So Stitch Fix is an innovative online apparel retailer. The company was founded in 2011 by Katrina Lake when she was at Harvard Business School. And they really combine both data science with human judgment to democratize personal styling. And as you can see, based on the charts on the right, the company has scaled at an impressive rate over the, um, the past five, six years. Uh, they're at over three and a half million active clients. That just means uh, people who have purchased from Stitch Fix over the past year. And on an annual basis, you could see they've been adding about 500,000 net new clients each year. Um, this has translated into over $1.7 billion of revenue on an LTM basis. And even more impressive, they've grown very capital efficiently. I mean, I think Katrina would be the first to admit that she wasn't the best at raising venture capital um, early in the company's life cycle. So unlike a lot of other um, e-commerce startups, Stitch Fix only raised $42 million pre-IPO. So this forced them to prove out the unit economics. It also forced them to balance top-line growth with profitability. And I actually think for a company that's taking inventory risk, that's a feature, not a bug. Um, and so the company's been operating profitably since 2015, despite significant growth investments that are hitting the income statement. So how does the product work? Well, first, a customer will go to Stitch Fix and create an account. Then they'll immediately fill out a style profile. So there's really three sections to this. First is your basic measurements, height, weight, what size apparel do you currently wear? Um, the second are your fit preferences and challenges. So do you prefer skinny jeans or more loose fitting options? Um, do you wear your button downs tucked or untucked typically? Um, do your shirt, are your shirts normally too tight around the shoulders and things of that nature? And then the third category is really uh, style and price point preferences. Everything from colors you normally wear to um, brands that you like. Um, and they'll also serve up visuals of certain outfits and uh, apparel items, like as you can see in the upper right-hand uh, corner of the page here. And you can give feedback with how much you, uh, you like those, um, those choices. And so once you fill out the style profile, you are matched with a human stylist and with the help of algorithms and technology, that stylist will choose five items of apparel to send to you. So very individualized, personalized toward to your preferences and, um, and you'll pay a $20 styling fee when the box is shipped. But to the extent you keep any of the merchandise in the box, uh, it'll be credited against the cost of that. So to the, to, if you keep one or more items, you're not paying anything for the styling service and instead you're just paying the cost of the merchandise. It's free shipping both ways and Stitch Fix makes the pro process really easy. You can see a photo of the box in the lower left here. Um, one of my favorite aspects is they include this prepaid shipping bag. 
So unlike other return processes where you have to repack the original box, you have to print out the return shipping label, you have to get out the packing tape. Here, you just throw the items that you're, you want to send back into the bag. It comes with a, uh, a built-in um, adhesive and you just you give it to your local postal worker or you drop it off at the USPS. And then obviously Stitch Fix is keeping track of the items you keep and return to get better over time. But even more important, they have built into the checkout process a detailed feedback form. So you can see that in the lower right here. Um, and so not only do they know what you're keeping and what you're returning, but they know the why behind those answers. And so they have so much more data than other offline or online competitors. The other thing I'll note here is that customers can sign up for or deliveries on an automated cadence, so bi-weekly, monthly, quarterly, or you can just sign up um, or you can receive fixes on an as-needed basis. So it's not a subscription service, although it does tend to get lumped in with other subscription companies. So it's a good segue to page five. It's one of the reasons why I think the company is so misunderstood. Over the past decade, there have been numerous high-profile commerce startups that have um, had that have flamed out. And so early innovations around pricing, think flash sales, or packaging um, or distribution, think subscriptions in a box, those led to some early enthusiasm. And venture capitalists were really attracted to um, a high top line growth. And so the companies were able to raise hundreds of millions of, of cheap venture capital, and they just plowed that back into marketing, which fueled top line growth. But they were never forced to prove out the unit economics. Um, and so eventually, I mean, they ended up trading marketing dollars for dimes, in essence. The other thing, these companies were such a good reminder that innovations around pricing or um, distribution, that in itself does not lead to sustainable competitive advantages. Um, and so they were easily replicated. Stitch Fix, on the other hand, I believe is differentiated. We talked about how they were forced to prove out the unit economics. They've been operating profitably since 2015. But even more so, they benefit from data network effects. Um, I'm a big believer in simplicity. I think an investing thesis should fit on the back of a cocktail napkin. And this is your cocktail napkin thesis. If I think it's the most important slide in the deck. Um, I believe the proprietary data they collect leads to a superior shopping experience, which leads to more customer activity, which leads to additional customer feedback, and that closes the flywheel. They also benefit um, from this amplifying factor where the proprietary data they collect, they're able to create a growing line of exclusive brands. And here they really try to um, cater to unmet needs in the marketplace. So based on the feedback that, and requests that customers are giving them, um, they'll create brands to address those if uh, third parties aren't, aren't doing so. Um, and this shirt I'm actually wearing today is one of Stitch Fix, uh, one of their exclusive brands. So it was included a fix a couple months ago for me. Um, and it's quickly become one of my favorite shirts. So it'll pass in most business casual settings, but the material is that uh, breathable, stretchy athletic material. 
So it feels like I'm wearing a Lululemon shirt. Um, so extremely versatile and wrinkle-free, and I can wear it in multiple settings at a great, great price point. So I think they're really executing well on the exclusive brands. And then the other aspect is the increased customer orders um, and the customer demand attracts third-party labels and third-party brands to partner with Stitch Fix. So as they're developing their own brands and as they're attracting more third-party brands, the inventory pool grows and it allows um, stylists to uh, cater to more um, occasions and um, address more customer needs and leads to a better shopping experience. So page seven, let's talk about uh, the data advantage a little bit deeper. So there's three types of data Stitch Fix collects. Number one is the client data. So we talked about the style profile earlier. Now the shorts will say that this really isn't that um, differentiated. It's easy to replicate. And I don't disagree with that. Um, but I also don't think it's the most important type of data that Stitch Fix collects. And there is some element of trust here. So the reason that customers are willing to give such detailed answers to the style profile and um, also share intimate, um, sometimes information that they may be self-conscious about is because that they trust by providing that data, their shopping experience on Stitch Fix will be better. And so there are, the Stitch Fix, the entire brand is around that premise. So other companies that are doing many types of things, they, not, they may not be able to convince customers of that feedback loop. Um, but then the other type of client data they get, they created this innovative digital product called Style Shuffle. And so you could see a picture of it in the lower right-hand side of the page. It, think of it as Tinder for clothing preferences. So they'll serve you up a picture. In this case, it's a short sleeve button down. And they ask if it's your style and you can select either thumbs up or thumbs down. Um, and then you'll be served with a, um, another um, article of clothing. And so it's a lightweight, fun way for them to learn much more about your style preferences. And it's been really successful. Over 80% of their customers have engaged with Style Shuffle, and they've collected a library of over 4 billion ratings. And so now this is much harder to replicate, right? I mean, that, um, that, that pool of data um, is really powerful. Uh, and the more I interact with it, the more they know about me and my preferences, and they're really able to personalize the service. The second category of data they collect is merchandise data. So this is certainly not proprietary. Um, but what I would say is it's really embedded deeply into their inbound logistics processes. And they're also collecting some non-traditional measurements. So everything from the diameter of the sleeve opening to uh, the height between the first and second button on a, on a shirt. Um, and then the third category of data they collect is the feedback data. And to me, this is the special sauce. Um, this is extremely proprietary and they get better over time with this information. I mean, they know um, if I'm not able to voice in my own words why I like something in the style profile, as I react to trying different things on and giving them detailed feedback about why I'm sending it back, they'll learn so much more about my preferences.
So with any database company, I like to run it through this quick checklist here on the right-hand side of the page. This originally comes from David Kim, uh, who leads the um, subscription blog called Scuttleblurb. And so he's just a really um, brilliant business analyst that I have a lot of respect for. Um, but so the quick checklist, is the data proprietary? Absolutely. I mean, it's particularly uh, style shuffle and the feedback data. Are the insights from the data critical? I think for fashion-oriented shoppers, they're constantly looking for um, apparel that fits them really well. They're looking to discover new um, uh, styles and new labels. And so I think the with all of this data, if Stitch Fix is able to deliver that, um, it's extremely critical and extremely powerful. And then last is, does the data lead to a feedback loop? And we talked about the flywheel on the prior page. Um, but this, this also highlights why I think they're first product, which is the five items in a box, was so powerful because it was a way for them to kickstart these data network effects. Um, they were collecting so much data because every time they sent out a box, they were receiving feedback on all five items in there. And um, it was it, they were able to kind of create their algorithms and refine them and iterate them over time. It also leads to, in my opinion, the most important investing question here. Does the proprietary data lead to a better shopping experience? It's that first section of the flywheel on the prior page. Um, and flywheels are interesting. They're kind of like manufacturing lines where they slow to the speed of the weakest link in the chain. Um, and I, so I do think that Stitch Fix offers a better shopping experience particularly for hard-to-fit customers. So I think it's one of the reasons why they've seen so much success with um, plus sizes. Um, for me, personally, I'm sm relatively smaller in stature, and so it's sometimes hard for me to find clothes that fit really well. And Stitch Fix has done an amazing job. Um, I've been using the, the product for over a year, and now I think they're really dialed into not only my style, but, um, but my fit. And... What I would say, so they are delivering on that shopping experience, but the feedback loop is long. I mean, early on, there were definitely some misses. I mean, it takes some time to iterate. And if you're receiving fixes on a monthly basis, it may be a couple of months before they really get dialed in. Um, and they may not wow every single customer with that first product experience. So if I had to rate them on this, uh, this section of the flywheel, I'd probably say they're achieving a three or a four out of 10. Um, but to me, so the, the flywheel is spinning at a relatively slow speed at this point. To me, that's a huge opportunity because they cost, the, the company is misunderstood and underestimated. Amazon, for instance, I think their flywheel is probably spinning at a nine or a 10. Everybody appreciates the power of that model and it's priced in. Here, the path forward, I just think is so clear. They continue to iterate, they continue to improve that shopping experience. And if you follow what the company has said closely, um, I think they've been laying out the blueprint. So on page eight, you could see as early as um, 2017, before the IPO, Katrina was talking about how, uh, like what makes the company special. And she was saying like, look, it's not the five things in the, in the box. The backbone of what we do is really personalization. And then fast forward to early 2018, they launched a product called Extras. 
So this allowed existing customers to add basics to their upcoming fix. So think underwear, uh, socks, t-shirts. And so in addition to capturing more customer wallet share, because customers would be making these purchases anyway, it also forced them operationally to figure out how to ship a varying number of items in each box. And so it paved the, paved the way for a lot of innovation that we've seen over the, uh, the past couple of years. So in June of 2019, they launched a product called Buy It Again. Basically, you can repurchase previously kept items from, from your fix. So if you just love a shirt, like if I want a duplicate of this because it's become my favorite shirt, I could, uh, I could repurchase the exact same one. I could also repurchase it in different colors or um, different patterns or even a different size if my size tends to fluctuate. And then in uh, mid-2009, uh, 2019 rather, on the Recode Decode podcast, um, Katrina again laid out the vision. She said, look, it doesn't have to be five things. It doesn't have to be in the box. Um, and it doesn't even have to be apparel. And we're going to be thinking about how to take this personalization capability and grow over the next 10 or 20 years. I mean, there's so much I love about this quote, but number one, it's showing she is constantly thinking about how to innovate and make the shopping experience better for clients. But two, it shows that she is thinking in decades. And that's really exciting, um, especially as that flywheel starts uh, spinning at a faster speed. And then late last year, in November of 2019, they launched a product called Shop Your Looks. And to me, this was the game changer. So this is a um, highly curated digital storefront of 30 to 40 items. And so it's based on your uh, existing clients' previous kept items. And um, it's a traditional e-commerce format that customers are very used to shopping in. And um, I think it's pretty powerful. I think it'll, uh, it'll really change the game and increase the addressable market. And then just on an investor update call last month, Katrina said they've been seeing a ton of success with direct buy formats. Um, and now they're actually transitioning engineering resources to try to bring this direct buy functionality to new customers in addition to existing clients. And so having lighter weight ways to engage with Stitch Fix rather than having to get um, the, the five items in a box. And um, to me, it, it's just the big growth engine of the company over the next decade. So here are some screenshots of the, the direct buy functionality. The extras are on the bottom of the page. Um, what I'd point out here is they have some partnerships with some of the more popular direct-to-consumer basic brands. Um, so Stance and Mack Weldon are shown here. And then they also have their private label socks, so the Everyday by Stitch Fix brand. And so I've purchased some uh, everyday Stitch Fix socks and really impressed. I mean, the price point was great, but more importantly, the quality was really good. And they've held up through um, dozens of wash cycles and, um, and they're fantastic. So I've been really pleased with, um, with the quality of the Stitch Fix private label products. And then on the top of the page, this is a screenshot of the Shop Your Looks product. Still very much a V1.0 uh, digital product. But you can see in the upper left, so I've kept this, uh, this button down in a previous fix. And so they're um, showing a jacket, a pair of jeans, and a pair of shoes that they think would go well with that outfit. Now I can click on any one of these products and um, purchase in a traditional e-commerce format.
And so I think if they continue to execute with this direct buy functionality, so highly curated and highly personalized, but still allowing me to, um, to browse, I think they have a chance to do something that no other um, commerce company has done, and that is bring window shopping on the web. So what are the advantages of window shopping? Number one, you walk into a boutique and it's a highly curated assortment of merchandise. It allows you to discover new styles and new labels. And it's also a really efficient process, right? I mean, if you see something you like, you grab it off the rack, you go into the fitting room and you see if it fits you well. If not, the opportunity cost was 10 minutes and you're on your way. Um, in an online world where most companies are competing with infinite shelf space so to, to provide the most selection, it's really difficult to discover new styles and new products. Um, you're basically given a search bar and some filters to navigate. Um, and absolutely, you can say that influencers are the new curators. I mean, I, one of my favorite uh, shows is The Bachelor franchise, and it's a running joke there that, I mean, people don't go on the show to find love. I mean, they go on the show to build their Instagram followers and kind of kickstart their careers as a Revolve influencer. And you really can't quibble with the, the success of that model. I mean, Revolve has built a business um, with over $600 million of revenue. But I still don't think they've solved the, the fit issue. Um, return rates through e-commerce are still so high. Um, and so even if you discover a dress or a shirt because your favorite um, Instagram influencer was wearing it, it may not fit you well. Um, and returns are still a hassle, right? I mean, we talked about it earlier. You got to print out the return shipping label. You have to put it back in the box. The get out the packing tape, bring it to the postal service. And so through data analytics, um, I think Stitch Fix has a chance to be so much more personalized, not only the discovery element, but it's this fit element as well. And hopefully uh, return rates are lower and they're um, satisfying customers. So page 11, you can't talk about an e-commerce company without mentioning Amazon, right? And so what has, let's revisit the formula for Amazon's success. Number one, vast selection, right? They have unlimited shelf space. It's the everything store. Number two, maximum convenience. So two-day shipping, moving to one-day shipping in most instances. It's one-click checkout because they have your credit card and shipping address saved. And then they're using their scale advantages to offer compelling price points which um, continues or allows the, the flywheel to, to spin even faster. And this um, model works incredibly well for standardized products, like think batteries, right? Or when you know exactly what you want to purchase. But fashion is so nuanced. Um, and sure, there's going to be a subset of consumers that purchase their clothing on Amazon, just like there's a subset of customers that buy clothes from Costco and Walmart. But on the other hand, there's gonna be a subset of consumers that are more fashion oriented, where style and fit are prioritized, right? I mean, I don't want the cheapest or fastest pair of jeans. I want a pair of jeans that fit me really well, that are comfortable to wear, and that give me confidence. 
Um, and I think the quote on the top of the page, so Emily Weiss, I think she nails it. Amazon really solved buying, but it killed shopping in the process. And this really relates to um, window shopping that we were talking about on the prior page. But, um, but mid last year, Amazon launched their Stitch Fix competitor. And so it, it's very, it seems like a Stitch Fix clone. There are a few um, small differences. Number one, it is a true subscription service. So in addition to your Amazon Prime membership, uh, you pay $4.99 a month to, uh, to get access to the, uh, the styling service. Um, and then they also give you the ability to preview the stylist's picks before they get shipped out to you. And so this wasn't a, a huge surprise. I mean, Jeff Bezos has said in the past that he believes the future of fashion is going to be mixing technology with personal touch. I mean, it sounds a lot like Stitch Fix to me. And look, I mean, Amazon is a terrifying competitor. They've shown an ability to enter new categories. Um, they have an extremely low cost of capital and an extremely long time horizon. Um, but I think, I mean, Stitch Fix as a focused and talented team with an ownership mentality can really win in this niche, particularly because this model isn't within Amazon's uh, commerce ethos, like we talked about on the left-hand side of the page. So page 12, how is COVID-19, um, how will it impact Stitch Fix? I mean, look, I mean, apparel spend is clearly a consumer discretionary category. And so to the extent that we have a um, prolonged recession, that will impact um, apparel spend. But the, on the other hand, there is going to be an acceleration of trends that we were already seeing, right? This shift from offline to online. I mean, the, uh, the offline retailers have just been decimated. And I also think there's a chance... Um, I mean, people have been cooped up in sweatpants for the past two months. I mean, the season has changed and I wouldn't be surprised as the economy starts to reopen to see more fashion-oriented consumers kind of revamp their seasonal wardrobe. Page 13, here's the financial summary. I mean, there's obviously a lot on this page and you can review um, at your own speed, but just a couple of things I want to highlight. Number one, so active client growth has been decelerating. So the shorts will point to this and say the Stitch Fix is really reaching their um, kind of market saturation level. Despite increased ad spend and um, increased categories, their uh, their client base is uh, is slowing in terms of the uh, in the growth rate, and that may be true. But to me, I just think uh, the direct buy functionality is the game changer. Um, has the ability to reaccelerate client growth as it's a lighter weight way for new clients to engage, and it's a way for uh, for existing clients to stay engaged. And then uh, clients or active client spend um, on a per client basis has been increasing year over year the past few years. Um, so this one is indicative that the product gets better over time as Stitch Fix learns more about you. So keep, fee uh, keep rates increase by on a cohort basis over time. But it's also due to the introduction of um, direct buy formats like extras, like buy it again, and like shop your looks. Uh, so they've been sustaining top line growth in the high 20% range. Um, and 
uh, very attractive gross margins in the mid 40% range. I mean, look, this is a full price commerce uh, model. And so I think those will be sustainable. And then the other things the shorts will point to are the declining operating margins over time. Um, they kind of point to the fact that they have to spend so much to acquire new customers due to high rates of churn that the unit economics are broken. And so for me, I have a fundamentally different view. I mean, if you look at the advertising line, in the early days, they really grew through word of mouth. They didn't have to spend on advertising. And as that advertising line item has kind of um, um, ticked up to a more normal level, they've seen an offset in the, uh, in the operating margin. But I, I still think the unit economics are intact and I think they're very profitable. I just think that the growth investments they're making are, are hitting the income statement and masking the, uh, the true earnings power of the business. I mean, so um, they're entering new categories. They entered the UK. They're building new fulfillment centers. Um, and I think most important, they're investing in talent, right? They're bringing on um, so many data scientists and engineers to create these new formats, particularly direct buy that's going to drive the next leg of growth. And so they're really following the Amazon playbook of um, reinvesting profits back into the business to, um, to kind of develop uh, new product lines and new business opportunities over time. Page 14 are the public comps. So these were as of uh, May 8th. So pricing is a little bit outdated. Stitch Fix has been up a bit this week, but you can see they trade at a significant discount to the other online retailers. There is a lot of negative sentiment within the investor community. I generally think it's a, a misunderstood company. Um, People question the sustainability of the growth rate and they question the, um, the long-term profitability margins of the company. So in essence, they're trading more in line with the branded apparel retailers, which are dealing with a whole host of offline challenges. Page 15 shows uh, some precedent transaction comps. Um, look, I, as a long-term shareholder, I, I see so much potential here. I really don't want Stitch Fix to sell to a strategic. Um, but for reference, you can see some of the e-commerce transactions have been in the uh, 1.5 to two times revenue range. Page 16 are some of the public comps over time. So you can see for most of Stitch Fix's life as a public company, they've been in that one to two times forward revenue range. Um, Revolve and Zalando have been in a similar range. Um, and so Stitch Fix right now is kind of at an all-time low from a, from a multiple perspective, although it has ticked up kind of back to the 0.9 times in the past couple of days since I put this presentation together. Page 17 are some illustrative valuation scenarios. Um, so I'm showing valuation matrices that are sensitizing um, revenue growth on, uh, on one side and then the forward multiple on the other. And so you could say that, like, look, the, the exit multiple range is one to two times. And I think I gave you some rationale for why I chose that range. But there, it's all three cases are at a premium to where the company is currently trading. And so you, you may think it's, um, it's pretty optimistic to assume multiple expansion. What I would say is that if you believe in the long-term margin profile of the business, management lays out 
long-term operating margins in the 10 to 12% range. And I think 10% is very reasonable. If you look at kind of where Nordstrom has been historically, or even where Revolve is today. And um, so a one times forward revenue multiple would equate to a sub 15 times fully taxed uh, PE at those margins. And so I think to the extent they're able to execute, this is an extremely um, uh, reasonable range. Um, and to the extent that direct buy, with direct buy functionality, they're able to sustain high level levels of growth. I think they're going to end up in kind of the lower right-hand quadrants of these, um, these charts. And so in five years, I wouldn't be surprised if the stock pro price is uh, approaching $100. And that leads to some incredibly attractive returns, to state the obvious. Page 18, this lays out the, uh, the leadership team and the board of directors. So a couple of things, I mean, in addition to really laying out the vision of the company and creating the formula for success, I think Katrina is an exceptional recruiter. So recently she hired Elizabeth Spaulding as president. And um, so her job is really to drive growth going forward. And there are two primary initiatives. One is direct buy, which we've talked a lot about. And the second is international expansion. So previously Elizabeth was the... Um, was leading the digital practice at Bain. And I'm optimistic that she's going to be an extremely valuable member of the team going forward. Um, but look, it's still really early. So it's hard to tell how she's been integrating. We haven't heard a lot from her since she joined the company. The other two execs I want to point out are Mike Smith and Eric Colson. So both joined um, in mid-2012 when the company was a little over a year old and both have extremely strong backgrounds. So Mike Smith, he was the COO of walmart.com and Eric Colson was the VP of data science at Netflix previously. And so Katrina was able to convince them uh, to join a, a startup by really laying out the vision. And even more impressive, she's been able to retain them over the years. And so Mike has had a tremendous role in building out the operations and particularly since the, uh, the logistics is particularly the reverse logistics are relatively complex. He's done an incredible job. Um, he's also uh, taken on some special projects and he launched the stitch fix men business in 2016. And that is doing really well. Uh, and more recently he's taken on the, uh, the interim CFO role. So the prior CFO who took the company public, um, he left earlier this year. And my understanding was that it was a mutual decision or he may have even been um, uh, gently pushed out. I mean, I think the company just got to a scale that exceeded his interest level and, uh, and skill sets. And so they're actively recruiting a CFO now and um, enthusiastic to see who, uh, who they bring on board. Um, and Eric Colson, so he really cre created the, uh, the data organization. And obviously that, in my opinion, that's the secret sauce of the company. Um, recently, he gave up the day-to-day -day management of the data science team, but he's still actively involved and he's leading special projects um, and just an extremely valuable member of, uh, of the executive team. And then at the board level, so it's an eight-member board, uh, Katrina, and then two of the venture investors. Steve Anderson was the seed investor with Baseline. And, um, and so he's been on the board since the company um, started pretty much in, uh, in early 2011. And then Bill Gurley uh, from Benchmark, he was the Series B investor. 
in 2013. And then they have uh, five independents with a, um, a broad array of, uh, of backgrounds, as you can see. Page 19, these are the, uh, the top shareholders. And so it's a super voting dual class structure. The B shares have 10 votes compared to one for the A shares. Um, and the insiders own almost half the, uh, the company. And a, a couple other things I'll point out. So Katrina Lake has received a ton of flack for um, consistently selling shares since the company went public. She has uh, been selling about a million shares uh, each year through 10B51 plans. Um, and that's kind of totaled um, almost uh, 17 or 18% of her initial holdings. Um, but, and look, I'm all about um, kind of skin in the game and an ownership mentality. But if you look at the facts, she founded the company in 2011 when she was at Harvard Business School. She received no liquidity pre-IPO. She received no liquidity in the IPO. And so her net worth was a few hundred million dollars all tied up into one stock. I mean, if COVID-19 has taught us anything, it's that the world is unpredictable and things happen sometimes outside of anybody's control. Um, so I think it was completely rational for her to diversify her, um, her net worth a bit. And so she's liquidated about 50 or $75 million. Um, and I think she'll continue to do so. And I have no problem with that. Uh, there's another e-commerce founder CEO in the early 2000s who was selling shares via 10B51 plans. Um, and that was Jeff Bezos. Uh, it doesn't get talked about a lot, but um, I, and I'm certainly not comparing um, Stitch Fix to Amazon in any way, but um, I just, I think it's completely reasonable and, uh, and rational. And if I were in Katrina's shoes, I would be doing the exact same thing. The other thing I'll point out, so Baseline, as I said, they were the seed investor. They haven't sold a share. So they've been in this almost a decade and they haven't liquidated anything. Um, to me, that's unheard of where you have an early stage VC with a huge win, but they see still so much potential that they're, um, they're maintaining their position. And then Benchmark, so they have been distributing shares post-IPO. They've distributed over 60% to their LPs in 2018 and 2019. But very interesting, just last month, they purchased a million uh, Class A shares. Um, and so to me, like, look, venture or LPs, institutional investors don't love to see venture capital firms or growth equity firms invest in public stocks. And Benchmark obviously has the reputation and the clout to do whatever they want. Um, but in my opinion, their hurdle rate was pretty high for this investment, um, or that would be my assumption, rather. And then Bill Gurley, um, he's also been purchasing shares in the, in the open market. So in October of last year, he purchased about $3 million worth of shares um, at almost $21 per share on average. And then in March, at the, um, at the height of the COVID-19 panic, he purchased another 3 million of shares at, um, at 12.76 on a blended basis. And here's another example. I mean, so he clearly had to get approval from Benchmark 
to make these purchases in my mind. Um, and just to go through that, that red tape, I think his hurdle rate was pretty high. I mean, I think it's completely reasonable for him to purchase shares, but it does create um, some interesting optics. And some LPs could, um, could say there is a misalignment of interests um, as he's buying shares when the company was recently distributing shares. And then um, the other thing I'll note is it's a pretty concentrated shareholder base. So the 15 investors that I've listed on this page make up about 75% of, um, of the shares. And so it really trades like a small or even micro cap stock. So that's the presentation. Um, I'll summarize with what's it got. I mean, this is one of my favorite questions when it comes to stock selection. And I'm borrowing it from John Hempton. And I mean, it's really gets at what is the secret sauce that's going to make me want to own this company three, five, 10 years down the road. And so, I mean, we talked about all of these, but I think Katrina is just an extremely special uh, leader. I mean, she's driving the long-term vision for the company and she's an exceptional recruiter. Two, I think the company benefits from data network effects, which is creating a flywheel, allowing the company to deepen its competitive moat over time. Three is this exclusive brand portfolio. It's really the, uh, the Netflix playbook, right? Um, original content to drive more customer spend and more importantly, more uh, client retention. Um, and then lastly, it's a very brand friendly platform. It's one of the only full price growth channels available to them. And particularly in a world where um, the offline competitors are imploding um, Stitch Fix is a really attractive partner. Um, it's also a way for brands to acquire new customers and get their merchandise in front of um, new customers in a way that's highly relevant and, and very brand friendly. On the right-hand side of the page, I've tried to summarize the short thesis. Again, we've talked about a lot of this, but um, they'll say it's a subscription in a box company with a limited addressable market. And to me, I think that um, direct buy functionality really increases the addressable market by an order of magnitude and can drive sustained um, growth rates in the 20% range for a very long period of time due to low penetration rates. Two, they'll say the data advantage is oversold. Um, to recap, I think that both style shuffle and the feedback data that Stitch Fix gets is extremely differentiated, very proprietary, and leads to a better shopping experience. Three is the Amazon risk. Um, again, I think it comes down to um, a highly focused and uh, incentivized team uh, competing with um, a company where this model really isn't in their ethos. And then lastly, we just talked about Katrina's selling stock, but I think it's uh, very rational. And that's it. So on page 21, here's my contact information. Again, the purpose of this presentation was really to invite feedback. So I please uh, reach out to me and let me know where I may be wrong or how you disagree um, or, uh, or any other thoughts you may have. Um, you can also find me on Twitter at svafier. Or you can find me at Wrightsville Beach, and I've included a picture here. I mean, if you haven't been, it's just a truly special place, and I'm extremely fortunate to call Wilmington home. Um, but that's it for, uh, for today and the presentation. 
Um, thanks so much for listening. And if you're in the market for, uh, for any apparel, um, definitely give Stitch Fix a, um, a chance. I think you'll be, uh, be really happy with, uh, with what you find. So thanks again, and I'll, uh, I'll be back soon uh, to continue the conversation. It's Carolina Story. Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this week's format experiment, and I look forward to sharing some more traditional long-form interviews in the weeks ahead. Cheers.